Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. For more in-depth perspectives and interesting stories, sign up for our daily newsletter at tvo.org slash daily. Globalization was already getting pushback from the likes of the current inhabitant of the White House, among others. Then COVID-19 revealed serious vulnerabilities in the global economy, particularly as supply chains faced unprecedented disruptions. Ian Golden is professor of globalization and development at Oxford University, director of the Oxford Martin Program on Technological and Economic Change, and co-author of Terra Incognita, 100 Maps to Survive the Next 100 Years. And he joins us now from Oxford, UK, on how to build a more resilient global system in a post-pandemic world. Professor, it's great to meet you. How are you managing? Very well, thank you. I hope you all are too. Thank you so much. Yes, indeed. I want to start actually with a quote from a book that you co-authored in 2014 called The Butterfly Defect. And here's the excerpt from that. The butterfly defect draws attention to the new nature of systemic risk. Due to globalization, the butterfly of change has lost its innocence. And globalization has produced structural defects that propagate new forms of risk. We face the real threats posed by systemic risks. Financial crises, pandemics, cyber, and other threats could overwhelm the ties that bind us. Deglobalization and slowing growth would be the consequences. These would be disasters for the global economy. Now, that was six years ago. Do I take it then that you have not been completely caught unawares by this pandemic now? No, it was inevitable. Um, The terrible thing is... Uh, The surprise is not that it happened, but that we were so ill-prepared for it. Well, to what extent do you think this pandemic has revealed how vulnerable our global system truly is? I think it's revealed it very starkly. Uh, What we've seen, and we saw this in the financial crisis, that should have been the wake-up call, that our hyper-connected systems lead to cascading shocks as well as opportunities. I'm a great believer in globalization. I think it's brought more opportunity to more people more quickly than any other force in history. That flows across national borders of ideas, of finance, of goods, of services, of vaccines, of ideas like Me Too and many others have brought progress around the world. But at the same time, our hyper-connected systems are leading to growing interdependence and complexity in what we saw in the financial crisis what we see in cascading uh, cyber viruses, and certainly what we've seen with the pandemic is this underbelly. The super spreaders of the goods like airport hubs, financial centers, cyber centers are also the super spreaders of the bads, and we need to manage them, which requires coordination, and that's what's being missing. Well, is the appropriate response to this then less globalization? I don't believe so. And ironically, what we need is some things to be globalized more, not least politics. Uh, We need to be much more joined up. The scientists are doing a great job in collaborating much more on developing vaccines and stopping pandemics. And we need much more coordination to stop cascading financial crises. And of course, the other unintended consequences of our success, like climate change. It's great that two billion more people have got energy, but the consequence is catastrophic climate change. It's great that more people are taking antibiotics. The consequence is antibiotic resistance. So we need to work together more. And that requires not higher walls and more protectionism and nationalism, but actually 
more coordination, more political coordination, more skills, uh, more sharing of ideas, and most of all, the will to stop our collective problems. But let me make sure I understand this. As we have increasingly globalized, we have created a more complex and more connected world, and in doing so, it's become more fragile and vulnerable at the same time? That's right. It is more fragile. It is uh, more vulnerable. I think we have to accept that inevitably. In the same way, uh, when we make new friends and we have new family members, we become more vulnerable. When they get shocked, we feel upset. Uh, so we are a more interconnected system. But that's brought the progress. And so we have to understand that these are the two sides of globalization. One is rapid spreading of good things and the other is rapid spreading of bad things. And we can't have the good things without bad things, but we can stop them and manage them if we have the will to. Our internet systems connect us, we're having this call through it, but we also know we could get cyber contagion. We also know it spreads fake news, anti-vaccination and other crazy ideas. So these things need to be managed. They don't, we don't stop them by stopping the internet altogether or by stopping financial flows or by stopping uh, energy use in Africa and elsewhere, which is contributing to climate change. We need to manage it more effectively. Well, let's do a real-life example here that I suspect uh, virtually everybody watching us right now will understand all too well. Uh, Apple, the Apple company. They're in 43 different countries on six different continents, and all of that has got to somehow come together to make their products. How do... How would they, for example, or any company that deals in that way, make their supply chains more resilient to deal with the reality of today? Well, I think one thing is we've got to get away from uh, just in time to just in case. So build up greater stocks. A lot of these firms are operating with extremely tight deadlines. We have a factory up the road here in Oxford that makes mini BMW cars, and they have something like three hours of supplies, uh, hyper interdependent with factories and supplies all over. And the same is true of Apple and many other supply companies. So some build up stocks, uh, build up diverse uh, capabilities from diverse suppliers uh, is part of that process. And I think try and manage some of the underlying problems. So what are you doing to contribute to more resilient systems? Are you helping, for example, ensure that your workers on the other side of the world are adequately protected against pandemics or other risks? What are you doing in your systems? And I think one of the bad concentration effects that's happened with globalization is the concentration in headquarter buildings. I worry a lot about locations, one place going down. And the more and more there's that concentration in a headquarter building, the greater the concentration risk from that. So I also think we should be spreading assets, we should be spreading management skills, we should be spreading backup systems to different locations around the world, and that builds resilience as well. Well, let me go back to just-in-time for a second, because just-in-time manufacturing has been incredibly efficient, it's been incredibly profitable for some shareholders, and I wonder if you're essentially telling these companies, you know, we need you to be a little less efficient and a little less profitable right now in the interests of international resiliency. Well, there are trade-offs, and clearly any spare parts and any spare people 
is cost money uh, and that hits the bottom line. So there is absolutely a cost. It requires investment and it requires more working capital tied up, whether it's on a bank balance sheet and you're holding more capital or whether it's in a factory uh, or in any other supplier, a hospital and the oxygen bottles or the number of ventilators they have, mostly not used. That's money tied up. So these are judgment calls. And clearly we can't protect ourselves against all eventualities. And we certainly can't protect ourselves uh, indefinitely. But having some resilience, the other thing I would highlight is if we need to stop these problems upstream. The way to deal with pandemics, you know, which have now cost the world economy over $10 trillion, uh, is not to try and all have a capacity in our homes to have enough masks. It's to stop the source of the pandemics as well. And the same is happening on climate change. The same is happening on cyber attacks. We really need to stop these things at their roots uh, to become more resilient as well. And that's completely failed. We're not seeing, we're seeing the withdrawal from the WTO and the WHO of effort rather than the investment in these international organizations which are dedicated to stopping these risks. No, I hear where you're coming from, but I'm just trying to imagine going to a shareholders meeting where some shareholder says to management, you know what, uh, I, I'm totally fine with the fact that we're making less money and my dividends are lower because we've got a more resilient company. I'm not sure that's a conversation that's ever going to happen, are you? Well, I think it depends very much on the company and it depends what the investors are there for. I think pension funds and other long-term investors that are really concerned on returns over a long period of time are prepared to make these judgment calls. They really care about whether the company is going to be around in five or 10 years time and the longer term returns. Other people that are trading on a daily basis clearly couldn't care whether the company will be there in, a, uh, in the medium term or not. So a lot depends on which investor class you're talking about, what sort of company and who the owners are. Governments have a lot of shareholding and a lot of influence so they could regulate and say we all we need to ensure that all companies have x number of days of supplies in a hospital you might say we want two months of supplies for a supermarket you might say we want two days of supplies but you can build these systems in just like in our homes we have regulations around fire hazard and so on that costs a lot of money to build in these regulatory uh, protections, we could do that on other dimensions as well. Well, you may have anticipated my next question here, which is, which is, okay, I understand that's the way for the private sector going forward. What about the public sector? Is there a lesson in here for the public sector as well? I think there's absolutely a lesson for it. I mean, firstly, we need to get our proportionalities right here. You know, we spend as countries something like a thousand times more on military protection compared to pandemic protection. Uh, we're fighting the old battles. We're not fighting the future battles, the risks that face us in the future. So looking in the rearview mirror in our politics and allocating resources in the rearview mirror is the first big problem. We need to empower our agencies in our countries, our departments, that are fighting the future. That's cyber, that's pandemic, that's financial stability. It's areas like that climate change, clearly in the green transition. The, the second thing we need to do is be thinking about where uh, are these risks likely to come to? And are we working with the other countries, the companies, the cities, the communities that can stop these problems? What are we doing as a country uh, to stop the next pandemic? What are we doing to stop the next cyber attack? What are we doing to stop climate change? These are part of building resilience for the country, preparing for the future generations. And then I think we need to ask ourselves at the civil service level, uh, lower down, is 
where are we cascading this to? You know, in the UK, and I don't know if the same was true in Canada, we were caught dismally unaware. We didn't have the protective gear for doctors and nurses uh, in hospitals. We didn't have the beds. We didn't have the ventilators. It's that basic sort of equipment that you think, wow, a health system should really have that uh, in the system and where it is. Uh, we knew a pandemic was inevitable. I think there's absolutely no excuse for saying we weren't prepared. Well, you've reminded me that the premier of the province of Ontario, which is the subnational jurisdiction you're in contact with right now, uh, his name's Doug Ford. And if I've heard him say it once, I've heard him say it 25 times. This province is never again going to be caught in a situation whereby we are not able to manufacture the stuff we need to keep our population alive. And I wonder whether I wonder whether some of the solution here is to be less reliant on other global partners and simply do more manufacturing within your jurisdiction. Well, that, that's a big trade-off, and I think one needs to think about it in different ways. You know, what Switzerland has decided is that they will stockpile three months' supply on certain things. They don't think they can produce everything, wheat and everything else you need. And I think stockpiling is a very sensible strategy, guaranteeing the supplies. I don't think producing everything you need in any jurisdiction, unless you're an enormous country like China uh, or the U.S., really makes sense. And even for them, it might not make sense. Certainly, if you're a very small country, uh, I think the UK is relatively small and much smaller countries, you really can't produce everything else. It would be enormously expensive. So you'd have to have protectionism, you'd have to have tariffs, you'd distort your local businesses, and you wouldn't be playing to your comparative advantages of what you do most effectively. So I think a, a, that's one strategy. I think a better strategy is not necessarily about producing everything domestically, but ensuring that you have the essentials in some sort of structure like a country like Switzerland is doing. As we consider our global institutions in the 21st century, let me put a line to you that you wrote once upon a time. Globalization, you wrote, has led to revolutionary changes that have outstripped the slower evolution of institutions. Amplify on that for us if you would. Well, globalization has really turbocharged the world economy, technology, innovation. That's the reason we're living in the most rapid period in human history is because these flows are coming from more and more places. We're learning more quickly. We're throwing out old ideas, taking on new ideas more quickly as a global community. And that's the reason why there's been the most rapid reduction in poverty in history, the most rapid reduction in, in increase in life expectancies uh, and overcoming of many big problems. So that's why I believe in globalization. It's brought more progress more quickly. At the same time, while this technological and other revolutions are happening, uh, politics is at best evolutionary. Some of us might even feel it's going backwards in some respects. And so that's a major, major gulf that's happening. Our politics is essentially national and Westphalian, working on very ancient models of local uh, responsibility. And the things that affect us and that will matter to all of our futures, wherever we are in the world, even in the mightiest countries, are coming from somewhere else. If it's climate change, if it's a pandemic, if it's going to be nuclear Armageddon, if it's going to be antibiotic resistance, whatever it's going to be, it's very unlikely that we're going to create it alone and we're even going to be the biggest part of the problem or the solution. And the answer to that has to be we've got to work with others to stop these problems. And so uh, the, the scary thing and the only thing that really keeps me awake is not that these things are happening, but that we aren't reacting in a way. This is not rocket science. Most of these problems, whether they're climate change uh, or whether they're pandemics, can be solved. There's enough smart people around. There's enough technologies around. We could stop these things at source. 
the question is, do we have the political will and then we create the economic incentives and other necessary parts to make it happen? And it's that politics. It's that nationalism. It's that we've got to still do things at the national level when we know our futures are going to be determined at the supranational level. Uh, that really is the, the divide that, that's troubling. Well, the one global institution that I suspect everybody knows a lot better today than they did a year ago is the WHO, the World Health Organization. And uh, our future is highly connected with that group. I wonder whether, in hindsight, you think they were up to the task of managing this pandemic. Well, most problems don't require global solutions. You know, even climate change, uh, something like a dozen countries account for 80% of the emissions. When you talk about a problem like financial crises or cyber attacks, there's a small number of countries that are the source of most of the solutions and the problems. The problem with pandemics is they can come from anywhere in the world, the richest country or poorest country. And that's why you do need uh, a global institution. The WHO, the World Health Organization, is, has not been fit for purpose, uh, but I don't blame and beat up on the organization. They are owned by us, by the shareholders. You know, the US is the biggest player by far in the WHO. It's got the most scientists there, it's given the biggest budget contribution. We've starved them as a collective community globally of the mandate for reform. We've got to insist on reforms. It's like shareholders of a company. If the company is a mess, the board needs to take some responsibility. Well, the shareholders, the board of these international institutions is the countries, is the big countries particularly. And so when we say the WHO isn't fit for purpose, what we're saying is we haven't given them the mandate, we haven't given them the money, we haven't insisted uh, on the reforms necessary. We need to look to ourselves. There's no alternative other than empowering a global institution to stop global pandemics. Either we fix it and make it fit for purpose, or we're going to have more and possibly more deadly pandemics in the future. Well, let me gently push back on that, because uh, you did mention a moment ago that, that politics does rear its ugly head during the course of this. And the fact of the matter is there are a lot of people who believe that China plays a disproportionate influence in the WHO. And as a result, um, who knows, maybe the, maybe the WHO was ham-fisted when it started this because of the place where this virus originated. Uh, maybe a coalition of willing, like-minded, Western-slash-democratic nations would have been a better way to handle this thing as opposed to a WHO, uh, which may have been negatively um, influenced by China. What do you say? I think coalitions can solve uh, many problems. I'm a great believer in NATO, for example, as as a force. Um, so there are many things that can be done by coalitions, but unfortunately not pandemic management. Because if once the pandemic starts, wherever it starts, it might be China, it might be the US, it might be uh, in Liberia or somewhere in Africa, it spreads globally within 36 hours through, through airport hubs. And so you need a capacity on the ground to stop it. You need cooperation with the country. You need to be able to get in there. And to, for the U.S. to say, OK, we don't think China's going to be a good partner in the, in the WHO, we're just excluded, is to say, well, the, the biggest source of pandemics in the future is excluded from the organization to stop pandemics. How's that going to work? Uh, so I think we have to accept uh, that everyone's in it. Now, that means it's going to have to be operative. China knows and is dependent on the global economy. I don't think China wants another pandemic uh, for itself or for the world. And I think what we'll get out of this is the capacity. But if the US says we're not gonna play with this institution, we wanna create another one, 
I just don't see how that would work. So my own view is, yes, they're going to have to be some really tough conversations. You've got to have surveillance everywhere in real time, and you've got to let SWAT teams go in there and stop them. And we have the technology and the capabilities to do that. That's got to be part of the deal. And then everyone pays. But the irony, in the and if you speak to the experts in the World Health Organization, the complaint everyone has had over the last years is that it's been too US dominated. So this sort of thing that it's China dominated, people in the organization, I believe there are many more Chinese scientists in the World Health Organization than there, I mean, many more US scientists than there are Chinese scientists. There's a CDC in China. So there's, you know, there has been much more cooperation that's been made out. In our last 30 seconds here, Professor, let's end up on this. Um, I have interviewed other people on this program who have said this pandemic has provided evidence and ammunition to those nationalist forces, uh, rejectionist forces that, apl- that oppose globalization and advocate for more retreating inwards. What would you say to them? I'd say there's no wall high enough that's going to protect you. You know, no, no country can be an island, even the richest country on in the world like the USA. Uh, climate change is going to take out Miami uh, through ocean rise. Uh, it's going to pandemics will affect people desperately. The jobs of the future, the investment of the future, the shared ideas and technological progress of the future, be they vaccines or others, uh, all the opportunities come from sharing with others, but so do the risks. And unless one manages both, uh, one has no future as a country. So I, I believe that the idea that you can somehow build a wall, build an island and be happy forever after is extremely naive, not only because you won't progress. The only country that's trying to do this, by the way, is North Korea. And you see what happens there when you try and isolate yourself. It's not going to lead to progress in your own country. And it's going to lead to you being overwhelmed by problems that come from elsewhere. So we're going to have to work together. That's Oxford University Professor Ian Golden. Professor, we're so glad you could join us on TVO tonight. Thanks so much and stay safe. And I hope people enjoy the book, Terry Incognita. Amen. Yes, let's plug that. I'm happy to do that. A hundred maps yeah, to survive the next hundred years. Canadian, by the way, uh, Rob <laughs> Mugger, my co-author, is a Canadian. So wonderful. All the, all the more reason we should buy it. <laughs> you be well, sir. Thank you. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is brought to you by the Chartered Professional Accountants of Ontario. CPA Ontario is a regulator, an educator, a thought leader, and an advocate. We protect the public. We advance our profession. We guide our CPAs. We are CPA Ontario. And by viewers like you. Thank you.